God is good all the time. Welcome to Christ Church. The times I love being here the most is when it feels like a movement of the Holy Spirit. I did not get into ministry to prop up institutional Christianity. I got into ministry because I wanted to be swept up in a movement of God. And today is a day where we are going to get to experience just that. Jerusalem, circa 33 AD, just below, just below the Roman crucifixion area was an abandoned rock quarry that ancient kings had used to build the city walls. Later, Christians built a church on top of it that later morphed into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Mary Magdalene had arrived where Jesus was entombed just before daylight on Sunday morning. On Friday, in a race against time, Jesus' body had been hastily taken down from a Roman cross, wrapped in linen and spices, and laid on a flat stone called a sepulcher. The Sabbath and the Passover had now passed, and Mary was awaiting daybreak so she could get some help to roll away the heavy stone that sealed the tomb entrance and properly prepare Jesus' body for burial. When the morning offered enough light for a visual, Mary saw that the stone had been rolled away and Jesus' body wasn't there. She ran back into the city to tell Peter and John, who rushed to the tomb to see for themselves. John believed Peter was bewildered, and Mary came back after the two men had returned to where they were staying. When Mary comes back, she is alone, or so she thinks. This is Easter, part two. Verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where Jesus' body had been laying. First century Jewish tombs were simply man-made caves carved into sheer rock faces. You made the entry small so that you could seal it to keep animals out. And once you got in, things opened up inside. You say, how do we know this? Because we have found a lot of first century tombs in and around Jerusalem. If you want to Google the garden tomb in Jerusalem, I don't think that's where Jesus was entombed. But I will say it is an excellent example of a first century tomb. They were built just like that. Mary walks in. She's absorbed in her grief. And she sees an angel sitting at the head and an angel sitting at the foot of the sepulcher, which would just be the rock where they laid the body on. The abandoned grave linens would have been in between. Verse 13, the angel said, dear woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Mary has yet to believe that Jesus is resurrected. There's circumstantial evidence around, but she has yet to have that epiphany for herself. Part of the reason is because she's so focused on herself. Have you ever noticed when you get pretty absorbed in your own stuff, it's hard to see what's going on around you? She's focused on her grief. 
She's focused on the unsettling task that the body is missing and she wants to find it. This is really a fascinating historical account. Always remember, John writes this gospel some 50 years after these events occurred. One of the things that I tell people all the time on the history of this is I don't have time to really lay out what is happening on a Sunday morning. But if you go to the bookstore, pick up a trail guide to the Gospel of John, it lays things out in great detail. So Mary is there. And the fact that John, who writes maybe five decades after this all happens, tells the story this way is utterly fascinating to me. You know, if John were embellishing this story, if he were embellishing this story, if he's writing to strengthen the case for the resurrection half a century later, this is not how you do it. You would never have Mary Magdalene discover the empty tomb. Never, never, never. Why? Because the testimony of women, especially young women, held no weight in patriarchal Jewish culture and little weight in the Roman Empire. If you want to build the case, you have Peter and John discover it. Or, better yet, a Roman soldier discover it. That would have been the best case of all. There's only one reason to offer the report this way. Because that's how it happened. It's the only possible reason. When Mary looked into the tomb, she saw two angels who asked why she was weeping. In the biblical sense, and in the Greek sense of angelos, an angel is a messenger from God. So it can be a human messenger or a divine messenger. What makes somebody an angel is not where they're from. It is the message that they carry. While white robes suggest heavenly beings, to be sure, they signify anything but death. And I think the symbolism is important here. White is the color of holiness. Purification, celebration, not mourning. Nobody's going to wear white at a funeral. Mary doesn't seem to be too impressed or chatty with the two angels. She turns away to be alone with her grief and with her confusion. And then, verse 14, she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. That seems to be what she's getting asked all morning. Who are you looking for? Do you remember the last time Jesus said, who are you looking for? Do you remember? They go from the upper room. They go down into the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount of Olives. They're in Gethsemane. Judas brings a contingent of temple guards and Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. And when they get there, Jesus says, who are you looking for? We're seeing some themes here. Who are you looking for? He asked. John says she thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him. And I will go and get him. And I think the first question a logical person would ask is, why didn't she recognize Jesus? That's where history can help us. There's nothing more defiling in ancient Jewish culture than a dead body. Now, you occasionally had to deal with them, but it was defiling. 
gardeners or caretakers of a tomb were near the very bottom of the Jewish social ladder because they were constantly in the presence of death. These would be the kind of people that normal folks didn't really look in the eye because they spent their entire lives ceremonially unclean. So the man asked who Mary was seeking and why she was weeping. And what I'm going to tell you, if Mary was unimpressed by the two angels in the tomb, this gardener's not going to get a second glance. Verse 16, Mary, Jesus said. When Jesus said Mary, she recognized his voice. Isn't it kind of incredible to know that Jesus knows our name? You know, we... We say Jesus loves you. When I was a kid, they had stickers to remind you of it all the time. But Jesus doesn't just love you all. Jesus loves you. Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows your story. And he loves you. Mary. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now Mary has seen the risen Christ. She has recognized the risen Christ. Now Rabboni is a term you use for a Maybe a prestigious teacher that you actually know personally, all right? Somebody that you actually know personally. You may have people that you know about. We live in a celebrity culture. But if you call somebody Rabboni, that means you know them. They know your name. You don't just know their name. Her specific instruction from Jesus is to inform the disciples of the upcoming ascension. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them this message. Can you imagine how much exercise Mary Magdalene got that morning? (laughs) She walks from wherever she's staying to the tomb. Then she sees the stones been rolled away. She sprints to find Peter and John. They go to the tomb. She's going back as they're coming back to the house. She sees the two angels, meets Jesus, and she runs back again. Wow. How can she find all the disciples in one place? The prescribed period for intense mourning in first century Jewish culture is seven days. So everybody that really loved you after a death would get together and spend seven days together. So the disciples would still all be together, which of course would make Mary's job pretty efficient. After encountering two angels, Mary is suddenly an angel in her own right. Because she's delivering news from Jesus to the disciples. Sometimes God uses folks like you and me. To be angels. If you are out somewhere and God puts it on your heart to pray for somebody when they mention they have something difficult going on in their life, if God pings you to invite somebody to church, you're serving the function of an angel. God has put something on your heart, He's given you a message to deliver to someone else. Mary, after seeing angels, is now an angel in her own right. 
She delivers three messages to the disciples. Number one, Jesus is risen. Number two, he will ascend to God. And number three, I have seen the Lord with my own eyes. I want to be real clear. As we look at evangelism and as we have entered this extended time of evangelism here at Christ Church, you're not going to argue anybody into Christianity. The most compelling testimony, the most compelling case for Christianity is a single transformed life. If God, through Jesus, has done something incredible in you, That is the most compelling case that there is for Christianity. Mary isn't telling the disciples what she heard. She saw telling the disciples what she saw. And all we do when we offer witness is tell people what we have seen and what we've experienced in our own lives and what Jesus has done for us. You can't argue about that. An evangelist is someone commissioned To share the good news of Jesus Christ under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we want to share the good news, but we're not properly under the influence. We need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. When the vision came for what we're calling the 500, this is an initiative here at Christ Church where we asked 500 people, to step up as evangelists and invite one new person to church every week for 60 weeks. 500. I I knew from the get-go that was going to be a daunting number. And I kind of wondered, you know, are are we going to be able to get there? And you know what? Not only are we there, we're at 575. We've been doing this for four weeks. And I want to tell you something. Sometimes you may wonder, are are these invitations that we're offering, are they doing any good? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that the win is when you make the invitation. That's the win. So when you invite somebody, when you give them a, a card, that is the win. The invite is the win. The rest is up to them and is up to God. I hate to say this, but it's above your security clearance. All you need to do is invite people. And the rest is up to God. But if you wonder if it's making a difference, how's this? Last week was Easter Sunday. Compared to Easter Sunday the year before, live attendance, not online, live attendance, we had over 750 more people here this year than we did last year. Is it making a difference? Absolutely. But it's also making a difference in us. That John, that Jesus commissioned Mary Magdalene as the first Christian evangelist. He told her, you go tell them the good news. She is the first Christian evangelist. It's scandalous by any measure. Not only is she a young woman, but her life before meeting Jesus had been tragic by any account. Let's just be real honest here. No one gets the tag demon-possessed because they do all kinds of normal stuff. Yet Jesus had saved her by all accounts. Her love for Jesus is unquestioned. She has been forgiven much. She has been restored completely. She's now not only one of the disciples, she, along with 
Jesus' mother Mary is the leader of the female disciples. God is using Mary for her glory. This happened 2,000 years ago and we are talking about her today. And she owed Jesus everything. She wasn't just on the miracles and wonder tour throughout the Galilee. She walked on the Via Della Rosa. She was at Calvary. She was the first at the tomb. She was the first to tell Peter and John. She was the first to actually speak to Jesus after the resurrection. And she is the first Christian evangelist. Indeed, the last has become first. So let's look at the evidence for the resurrection. Let's just look at what we have. Just the facts. Remember Dragnet, those of you that are old? Just the facts, ma'am. Number one, Jesus was dead on the cross. He was dead. Stone cold dead. Number two, Jesus' body was placed in a tomb. Number three, Mary Magdalene visited the tomb before daylight on Sunday morning. And in fact, if you ever wonder why do Christians celebrate church on Sunday when the Sabbath is on Saturday, it's because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. That's why the chef. So Mary Magdalene visited the tomb before daylight. Number four, the stone had been previously rolled away. Number five, Mary ran to tell Peter and John. Number six, Peter found the abandoned grave close. Number seven, John believed. He believed. Number eight, Mary returned to the tomb. She encounters two angels. Number nine, Mary then encountered Jesus. Number 10, Jesus told Mary to take the good news to the other disciples. And number 11, Mary offered the witness, I have seen the Lord. So I want to be very clear here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical event. I'm going to say it one more time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical event. Jesus of Nazareth was alive for about three decades. He died on a Roman cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And God resurrected him from the dead. As Orthodox Christians, we must take this account literally in every way. There's no wiggle room here. Everything we believe about life and death and life beyond death is predicated on this single event happening in real time. We must never soft pedal the resurrection, for within it lies the essence of the Christian faith. So if someone says to you, well, does it really matter if Jesus rose from the dead? You scream at them, yes, yes. It matters. Yes, it is the single most important thing in my life that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. They put Jesus of Nazareth on a Roman cross. He breathed his last. He yelled, it is finished. They took him off the cross. They put him in a grave. They wrapped him up. He sat in that grave for three days. And then early on Sunday morning, early, God breathed life into the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus Christ ran out of that grave. That is our stuff. That's our best stuff. We can't go soft on our best stuff, church. 
We can't go soft on our best stuff. The second you compromise a literal resurrection, your Christianity is no longer Christian. So what do we have in front of us? An opportunity. I shared with you last week, Christ gives us an opportunity to have our sins forgiven, to give our lives to him, to live for eternity with God. That is the opportunity to have our eternal trajectory changed because of what Christ has done. But we have to receive it. We have to accept it. I led everybody in a Easter prayer last week. For some, they invited Christ into their lives for the very first time. For some, it was a reaffirmation of faith. And I would like for us to pray that prayer together again today as we wrap up the Easter narrative. And I'd like to ask you to open up your heart. Maybe you've been in church your whole life, but what I'm asking you is, have you ever truly asked Christ to come into your life? If I asked you what makes you think you're a Christian, and you tell me how many times you've attended church and show me a framed confirmation certificate, I'm going to offer you might want to work a little harder. I am a Christian because I have freely accepted by faith the opportunity for salvation that it was given to me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I didn't do a thing to deserve it, but I do have to receive it. And so do you. And so do you. So let's say a prayer together. Open up your heart. If you've never asked Jesus in, do it right now. If, if you've asked him in, but you know you need to reboot that faith, let's, let's, let's let that thing start right now. Let's pray together. Resurrecting God, thank you for loving me. I ask your forgiveness for my sin. Jesus, fill my life fresh and new and unleash your Holy Spirit in me. I give my whole life to you. I bring my needs to you. I leave my issues with you. This is my new start. I pray all this in your strong name. Amen. Look at me and say, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. Let's have a confession together. I'm going to make a confession. You repeat after me. I am loved. I am forgiven. I am filled. I am delivered. I am saved. I am whole. I am a Christian. And right now, we'd like to give you an opportunity to be baptized. Maybe for the first time, maybe to remember that baptism, but we would like to give you that opportunity. So those of you that have already prepared to have been baptized today, I want you to gather right over here to my left, your right, gather over here with Reverend Carmen and start getting ready up front and we will begin that phase. There's going to be three phases of our day. First, we're going to baptize people who have already informed us that they want to be baptized. For the first time. Secondly, if there's anybody here who's never been baptized and you had no idea that that was going to happen today, but God is putting that on your heart, in that second movement, we'll give you an opportunity to be baptized. Had a woman this morning who came in and you talk about somebody who did not dress to be baptized. <laughs> and boom, God put it on her heart. Maybe that's you today. And then finally, we're going to have a time of remembering our baptism. So three movements. 
I want to tell you about something. I was in Israel in January with some of you. It was the day that we were going to be remembering baptisms in the Jordan River. And when I went down to remember people's baptisms, you climb into the water. It's, it's really, really cold. It's really, really dirty. And I did all the baptisms and remembering baptisms. And all of a sudden, I just felt this ping from God that I needed to remember my baptism. It's been a tough six months at the House of Bishop. My wife, Melissa, was diagnosed with cancer at the end of the summer. And we have spent the last several months in this sequence of what seemed like endless chemotherapy, followed by surgery, followed by radiation. And that's just been our life. Some of you know that life. You get a phone call and all of a sudden you're swept up in this parallel universe. And when I got to Israel, I was just tired. I was just tired. When I stood in that water, I felt a need. Not to be rebaptized. My first baptism took just fine. <laughs> but I need to remember that baptism in a special place and in a special way. I needed to tell God how much I love him. And I needed to tell God that though it's been really tough at my house for the last half year, he's still good. He has never left us and he's never forsaken us. And in the most difficult stretches of that long highway, we never felt that God abandoned us, but we felt his presence even more than we ever had before. I just needed to go down, under, and to be pulled up again. Over the years, when I've baptized people in the Jordan, there's this joy that comes upon them, and I've seen it here at Horse Trough. When they get out of the water, there is this just supernatural joy of the Holy Spirit that just sets down on people. And I've got to tell you, I'd never really had that happen to me until January. When I pulled up out of that water, there was such a filling of the Spirit. And I'll never forget it. I wish I could take all of you to Israel. But I can't afford it. But I did bring a little bit of the Jordan River back. We've poured it in the horse troughs. We've poured it in the four bowls. We've got some of the Jordan River back. And as you guys come on up, come on up and begin to get in the, the troughs. We've added that today. And what we're going to do is just have a time of prayer. And then we're just going to have a time of worship. And we're going to celebrate these first-time baptisms. And as we do, just feel God's pleasure. Because I have a strong feeling that this morning all the angels in heaven are tuned in. And they're going to rejoice 
with every single person that emerges from the water today. My whole life, I've always dreamed of being caught up in a movement of the Holy Spirit. I have never felt more a part of a movement that I have in these months. Glory be to God.